You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 65th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today, I have a very special show planned with my choice theory colleague and therapist, Dr. Ron Modern. Ron has worked in psychiatric treatment in residential, acute, inpatient, partial hospitalization, and intensive outpatient treatment. He has worked with probation clients in intensive residential, intensive outpatient, outpatient, and individual treatment in the areas of substance abuse and criminal conduct. He achieved his CTRT, Reality Therapy Choice Theory, certification in 2005, having taken training with these big names, Barbara Jacobson, Bob Wobelding, and Tom Smith. He's currently in private practice. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I just want to mention a minute about the work that you do, because it surely sounds like you work a lot with clients who may not be breaking down your door saying, please help me. Is that fair to say? For the most part in the past, especially working with substance abuse and criminal conduct, that work was with adult probation community corrections uh, when I was in Tennessee, working on my PhD as well. So yeah, those uh, less than enthusiastic clients have been a big part of my journey. (laughs) Yeah, I have that background as well. So I understand how challenging it can be to try to help someone who really doesn't want your help. And when you say, what do you want? They say, I want you out of my face, then it's an interesting dynamic. So I can relate on that level for sure. I've been on your Modern Institute website page and was quite impressed. It looks like you've had a lot of training. I noticed a blend of martial arts, hypnosis, and choice theory. I'd like to hear how you blend all of those for your unique methodology and then why, out of all the theories out there, you chose choice theory as yours. Let me take the last question first, if I, if I could, sure. and, then, and then work into it. I became acquainted with reality therapy when I was going to graduate school, working on my master's in human services, social psychological services at St. Edwards University here in Austin. And I think it was a counseling theories class. And I came across Glasser and uh, reality therapy. And at the time, it was still control theory. But as I read this, when I went into graduate school, I was very biologically oriented, biological basis of mental health and and that sort of thing. And of course, reality therapy was the opposite of that. (laughs) So it was very strange to me. So I said, I I need to learn more about this. This is so strange. So I started studying it and uh, everything that I read uh, sounded, you know, like it made sense to me. I went and did my basic intensive week with Barbara Jacobson. And at that point, I was sort of really hooked on reality therapy and, uh, and control theory and went on from there. But the first article actually I ever had in the old Journal of Reality Therapy was on choice theory in the dojong, which was on um, how to use choice theory in martial arts. And it had a lot to do with looking at the basic needs, things that go on, practices that go on the belts, different belt colors, you know, recognition for achievement, that sort of thing. That's sort of how I tie it in there. I have another book that's called Mastering the Way, Achieving Success in Martial Arts Training, where I draw a lot on choice theory as well. It's sort of how I tie that into martial arts. 
As far as the hypnosis goes, I think that's one of my better read articles <laughs> somewhere is on uh, using uh, using choice theory and reality therapy and hypnosis uh, and, and what have you. Sort of the same way, you know, always going back to those basic needs and really looking at what people want in their lives uh, and especially on, you know, sort of an unconscious level. Lots of times, you know, people think that because we're choice theory, reality therapy, that we don't deal with that unconscious stuff. Well, that's a part of life, right? That is a part of something we have to deal with. So uh, certainly using hypnosis there and looking at what really do you want? How can I help you with this technique of hypnosis to get closer to what you want in your life? So that's how I sort of apply choice theory, reality therapy to the hypnosis. That's really cool because I know that it is true. If you're a straight reality therapist, you really aren't looking at subconscious stuff. So introducing hypnosis gives you access to information that you wouldn't otherwise have, which I think can be really important because I work with subconscious stuff as well, not through hypnosis, but just through some relaxed kind of questioning. I find that if you don't access that stuff, often that's the very thing that's getting in the way of them moving forward towards what they want. Is that the same thing that you find? You find barriers there? Certainly, yes. That is something that I find. The old saying in reality therapy is it's easier to act your way into new thinking than it is to think your way into new acting. Bob Wobling always used the suitcase analogy for the needs instead of the car, right? Where the first, you know, the handle was always behavior, you know, what are you doing to get closer to what you want? But I come from a, a more cognitive background, so I'm always looking and thinking more than I am the behavior because from a cognitive perspective, you can't do anything without thinking about it. But the thinking might be unconscious. <laughs> so really looking at that and doing a lot of cognitive restructuring, focusing on that thinking wheel of that car uh, is especially important for, for what I do, especially for the people that I worked with. As you know, you know, the evidence-based practice for criminal conduct is cognitive behavioral therapy, of which reality therapy is a part. Cognitive behavioral therapy that focuses on the cognitive restructuring, social skills, and problem solving, all of which is a part of choice theory. So the problem solving part, that's the WDEP cycle that we have, the once doing evaluation planning. So it really fits in good with all of that stuff. Yeah, I really like that. And also I can tell you another analogy to your martial arts. One of the things I've always said based on working with non-voluntary clients, right? They're not exactly happy to come and see you is that we have to align with their resistance instead of try to fight their resistance. And I'm no martial artist, believe me, but I do know that there is something about that in martial arts where you use the momentum of your opponent and it's similar to that in reality therapy when you're doing it well. You're not trying to fight with your client. It's really a hands-off. I'm not trying to make you do anything. I'm just here to give you some information and you can do with it what you want. And that is pretty disarming. And it often, not always, but often allows our clients to move in a little bit and lean in and hear what we have to say. So I think it's really masterful what you do. By the way, I'm also a thinker. So when I train coaches now, and when I train my coaches, I tell them, I believe that most people have a predominant way. Some people are more doers and they do their way into new behavior. I think Bob Wobbledding is one of those people. I think Bill Glasser was one of those people. But I think my way into new behavior. I know I do. I have to get my mind right before I can do it. 
And I made the mistake early on of thinking everyone was a thinker. And so I was trying to introduce this thinking way into the plan. It didn't work for everybody until it dawned on me, gee, not everybody's like me. So I try to find out from my client, do you more often do your way into new behavior? Are you kind of a Nike, just do it kind of person? And you'll start to like it once you get into it. Or are you somebody that has to really think about it and get your mind right first? And that helps me know how to plan with them. So it's great to talk to somebody who's thought of those things as well. So thanks for that. We've already talked about this a little bit, but you've worked a lot in substance abuse and criminal conduct. What does that have to do with relationships? Because anybody who's listening that knows about reality therapy know we're big on helping people with their relationships. So what does that have to do with relationships? Especially substance abuse. Anytime you find somebody who has a substance abuse problem, anywhere on the scale of substance use disorder, whether it's just at the very minimal part or, you know, you're talking about addiction, substance use disorder, severe, things like that, that wreaks havoc on the relationships in people's lives. That is the one thing that you really can't avoid if you're talking about recovery from substance abuse and things of that nature. You can't avoid that. You have to deal with the relationships because those are going to always be in people's lives. And those can be either supportive relationships, developing supportive relationships, or it can be the opposite of that. It can be a relapse trigger that I go back into my relationships, even though I'm clean and sober now, I go back into my relationships, but I'm treating people in the same way, using those seven deadly habits, using things like that. And I'm going to destroy those relationships and find myself, once again, unable to fulfill those needs. I mean, that's the reason we talk about relationships being so important in reality therapy, right? Because ultimately, that's how I get my needs met is through that forming need-fulfilling relationships with other people. And it works very similar with criminal conduct as well, because you're dealing with people who are really causing havoc in their lives, but not only their lives, but their families' lives. So they're not there for their children, you know, they're incarcerated, something of that nature. So it really puts a burden on their families, really puts a burden on uh, the people who care about them. And certainly when you're in jail, in prison, you are going to act differently than you do when you're out dealing with your loved ones. And that's that's something that many people are not able to make that transition. They're not able to make a transition from, let's say, a jail mentality and how I have to sort of act in there to survive to outside. And if I don't make that, very soon I'll find myself back inside if that's how that's I'm right. going to act. But a big part of that is dealing with my relationship. I find a parallel with some of the people I work with in the military. You have a very different mindset and set of behaviors when you're on deployment than you do when you come back and you're dealing with your wife or husband and your children. To make that transition is not always an easy thing. So great. The Great Santini, right? Robert Duvall in the movie, The Great Santini is a good example of that. How, you know, if I bring that military home, it doesn't always work. That's right. You know, a lot of my audience is choice theory people, but for those who aren't, for somebody who just happens to find this podcast, do you want to spend a minute telling about what those five basic needs are and maybe even moving into those seven destructive or disconnecting relationship habits you mentioned? Sure. 
Well, of course, the five basic needs always start with survival, right? We have that one physiological need of survival, which I'm finding more and more I deal with, especially dealing with PTSD and things of that nature, because I believe that really is, that's the sort of the key to that, is dealing with that as a survival need. The brain is telling us, this is what you need to do to survive. It got to be a picture, whatever that behavior is. It got to be a picture in our quality world because it had value to us, right? If it didn't have value to us, then it wouldn't be there. And it had no real psychological value to us. So what was it? Why do we hold on to that behavior? And what I've come to believe is that the reason we hold on to those sorts of behaviors is because it had a survival value. Whatever it was I went through, I lived through it. And it was so intense that it got to be a picture in that quality world very quickly, just as anything does that meets the survival need. That's the survival need. Then we have those uh, four psychological needs, love and belonging, power and recognition, fun and learning, and then freedom, independence, and choice, which I find to be an interesting one as well. Because, uh, you know, having lived in other countries and things like that, the idea of independence was not really there. I lived for a while in Korea and everything was done as a group. If you wanted to go off and do something by yourself, it was really sort of insulting to the group. <laughs> so you said, well, you don't have to do that. And they would say, oh, yes, you must do that. <laughs> Whenever I play this game, I have, you know, it's one of the needs games I play. I need it not, I need it a lot, right? Where I have people write on pieces of paper each of the needs, and then underneath each of the needs, they write the psychological needs, omit the survival need for this. And underneath each of those psychological needs, they write what they have in their life that fulfills that need or what they want in their life that will fulfill that need for them. They come up with a list of that. And then I tell them there's been a, you know, a psychic catastrophe in the universe. You got to give up one of those needs never to have it again. They have to go through giving that up and what have you. And we discuss that and work it all the way to the last one. And if things work out well, that last one is their biggest need, right? I'm holding on to that one until I've gotten rid of all the rest. That one I can't really live without. So we have that game that I play with that sort of identify those needs for people to help them do that. And there's a lot of those games out there, but that's just the one that I use. Those are the five needs, the one physiological need of survival, and then the four psychological needs. And then, of course, we have those seven deadly habits and the seven caring habits. The way I do the deadly habits is, of course, there's more than seven of them. <laughs> so <laughs> the way I remember just A, B, C, D, E, right? So angering, blaming, complaining, you know, things like that. So I'll just work my way through the, the alphabet uh, through there. I found that we tend to focus more on those. This was something that a colleague had said uh, who was not in choice theory, reality therapy. I think I was doing some training on it where I worked at the time. He said, why don't we focus more on the caring habits? <laughs> and, and I was thinking, you know, that's well, that's really right. You know, that really is that accepting and listening and things of this nature, negotiating our differences, all of these things. I think we sometimes don't focus on those enough and we focus on the deadly habits than we do on the caring habits. And certainly as we look toward the future, you know, in therapy, that's what we're doing, right? We're looking toward the future. We often say, well, you know, the past is, uh, if I'm thinking about the past, it's depression. I'm thinking about the future, it's anxiety. I have to live in the moment. But I live in the moment with a plan to get towards the future because that's how we meet our needs, right? I can only meet my needs in the present and plan to meet them in the future. 
and therapy, not just focusing on what's right here, but how am I going to get my needs met in the future? What goal do I have? What do I have to look forward to in my life? Which with young people these days, I find is a question I ask quite a bit, or they're asking me one or the, one or the other, <laughs> what do I have to look forward to in my life? Why would I want to continue, right? Especially dealing with suicidality and things like that. Why do I want to continue with this? And really finding meaning in life and what have you. Doing that through fulfilling those basic needs and really practicing those caring habits. Right. It's a high bar to eliminate those destructive habits and to only use the caring ones. But what a goal to shoot for, right? It's a nice path to walk. You've published a good variety of articles, I know, on choice theory and reality therapy, first in the Journal for Reality Therapy and now in the International Journal for Choice Theory and Reality Therapy. From CT as a model of adult development to better understanding pictures in the quality world from a neurological perspective. And just for our audience, the quality world is that magical place where everything is perfect that we hold in our mind. In your mind, you're a perfect human being. Your children are perfect. Your life is great. Everything is wonderful. So that's the quality world. Are there any particular areas you might still like to pursue? What's on the horizon for you? Well, I really think that uh, what I talked sort of about earlier about the survival need and how important that becomes. I know I've done some work with people who are depressed and what have you. And oftentimes I think that depression, especially if it's long-term depression, if it's chronic depression, I think that can often come about as really somebody who has a big need for survival. There is survival value in me looking at the bleak side of things. We develop that for a reason. Evolutionarily, we look at that, that people who think, well, I don't know, maybe the saber-toothed cat is behind that tree over there, probably lived a little longer than people who didn't think about it at all. Right? So it has survival value for us to think about maybe things would be bad. But I think what happens sometimes with depression is people get stuck in that. We know the brain these days is neuroplastic. When I was growing up, they told us it was like concrete, right? Right, was, fixed. <laughs> right. I've, I'm old enough to remember where they said, once you reach that certain stage of development, that's it. It doesn't You're change. You're done. Right. So we know these days that the brain is neuroplastic. So I think really a lot of the times we find people with a high survival need that just becomes out of control, right? Instead of working in a positive control way, it works in a negative control way. And so I'm seeing everything negatively. I'm not just seeing things individually, negatively, but everything in my life. And they train the brain to do that. We have that area of the survival need. Also, like I was saying, PTSD. I think I've been asked before by clients is, well, how does this behavior get in my quality world? Because I don't want to do these things. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want, I don't want this. What need does this fulfill for me? I really had to think about it a little bit and say, well, you know, really what need that fulfills is the survival need, because whatever horrendous thing you went through, whether it was domestic abuse or whether it was, you know, in the military and had to deal with that, or even secondary trauma for first responders or what have you, you lived through it. Whatever you did to live through it got stuck in there as a picture in the quality world. So I'd like to experience that some more. Right now, I'm, you know, I usually go the direction of, you know, it's your brain and it's trying to help you. It's not helping you. <laughs> 
it helped you in the short term, but it didn't help you in the long term. So maybe you just had to have a conversation with yourself, have a conversation with your own brain. And when you start to feel these things starting to occur and say, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but it's not time right now. And just sort of work through it in that way. I think there's some meat there that needs to be chewed or fat, whichever it is, meat or fat, (laughs) that needs to be chewed on that subject. Yeah, I've done a lot of thinking about that. So one day it might be nice for you and I to sit down and talk about that in particular. Would you say, and I'm going to start by saying, you know, I'm extremely biased toward the choice theory approach already, but I'm going to ask you, is there a time that you think choice theory reality therapy doesn't work? Uh, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have found that that's sort of been my publishing thing, you know, what I publish in the journal and what have you and, and in other things as well. It's been very diverse in those areas. And, and I like to do that. You know, I looked at Robert E. Howard, the writer, uh, creator of Conan the Barbarian and, you know, King Cole, things like that, who created, who uh, committed suicide at 30. And so, you know, I did one on that, looking at really from a choice theory perspective and applied that. And then the ones on the martial arts and, and different things, the pictures in the quality world from the neurobiological perspective, et cetera. Adult development was one that I did. It was interesting. I, I was working on that article and uh, emailed Dr. Glasser on it. And he said, you know, I'm so far away from academia right now. I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Glasser. <laughs> Things like that, I've just sort of looked for different ways. How does this fit in? I even did a financial thing one time. That's one of my better read ones, too, I think, is on using uh, choice theory as a, as a sort of financial planning, using the scales, right, in the comparing place and things like that in the creating place, and et cetera. I don't think there's a place where reality therapy doesn't work simply because it deals with cognition, it deals with behavior, it deals with emotion, it deals with physiology. That's the complete person. In there too, we can throw spirituality as well. Not as a need, but we can throw it in there as as an area of study. But I think that reality therapy really is the full package I've never had a reason to go outside of it. I mean, I've worked in acute psychiatric care to somebody's having problems with their kids. It's worked all along. And that's really what drew me to it in the first place was this work. Like I said, I came into it from a very biological perspective. But as I was working with my caseload and what have you and started to incorporate reality therapy into it at that time, I found that it worked that people had relief, that people found results and goals in their life that they fulfilled. And of course, also, I was practicing it in my own life as choice theory, reality therapy people. We can't not practice what we preach in our own own life. I found it working in my life, and I haven't really found where it doesn't work with other people. One area that I would really like to learn more about, and Glasser talks about this, In psychiatric hospitals, certainly working with psychotic people is very difficult. But, you know, he talks about that when he first started out. There was that orderly that could do, you know, they would come and everybody would be calmed down. They'd be psychotic and they'd come back and he sort of had them under control. One of the people that Glasser learned from. And I don't know that he ever went into a whole lot of depth on what that guy did. He talks about Harrington, of course, and things like that. But there was that one orderly he talks about in a couple of his books. I don't think he ever really says what the guy did to help with that. I would really like to know that. Yeah, <laughs> he, he didn't say that I'm aware of either. 
I tend to agree with you. I use reality therapy pretty much exclusively. Of course, I have some techniques that I bring in that I use and borrow from different places. The only thing I would say when reality therapy might not work is when someone has impairments of cognition. But then I would say in those situations, I wouldn't use talk therapy, but choice theory instructs us what to do. You're never at a loss for what to do next because choice theory tells you to look at the person and the behavior and then guess give your best guess what need might be behind that behavior and try to create an environment where that need is easier to have met. And that usually will help the behavior. And if it doesn't, then maybe you've guessed wrong and try another one. So there's always something to do, which is what I like about it, especially in the field of parenting. They have a lot of techniques, but those techniques don't have theory behind it. So if you use the technique textbook, the way they tell you, and it doesn't work, then what? You don't know what to do next. But with choice theory, there's always something to come back to. So I know I said I'm biased. This is my bias. So anybody listening, you can argue with me if you want. But that's what I found in my practice. I find this especially with people, the people who can be sort of exasperating are the people who are stuck, right? They're just stuck. They can't move for whatever reason. And that's one of the things that the cognitive aspects of this really don't work for. In fact, they're probably cognitively constipated at that point. Uh, so that's really where you go to just do something different. Well, what can I do? Well, I just do something different. If you can't figure out anything, then I'll, I'll work with you to come up with something. But I want you to do something different. I don't care what it is. Just do something different and uh, and go from there. And like you said, if that if that doesn't work, then the next week it's okay. So what else can we do differently until we just act our way into something that fulfills our needs? Yes. I know that you've written several books and you have them on Amazon. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, I have a little Harvey, the hypno uh, which is sort of teaching children how to use self-hypnosis for different childhood fears and things like that. You can use it for whatever stage of development, all the way to adult. You can, adults can still use it themselves as well. And in all of these books, I'm always include choice theory and talk about choice theory and what have you, because that's really the basis for everything that I do. So Little Harvey, the hypno Rue is there. How do I overcome these fears and what have you? Well, we have some things to do, but it does talk about the procedures that lead to change. In fact, we have the WDEP platypus in that. Little Harvey, of course, is in Australia, so we have that platypus in there that's looking at that WDEP cycle. I have Mastering the Way, Achieving Success in Martial Arts Training. Once again, that really focuses on what am I doing, right? What am I doing right now? Is that getting me closer to what I want? And then using that within a martial arts context with examples and things from martial arts. The Choose Wisely, the uh, Cognitive Behavioral Intervention for Substance Abuse, uh, we have that book. That goes through each of the sort of stages, right? It starts out looking at basic needs and includes that I want it not, I want it a lot game in there. It goes on to the wants from there. It goes into the pictures of the quality world, the comparing place, the creating place, et cetera. So it really has exercises. It's a eight lesson exercise that goes through all of those. There's a curriculum in there that is structured because this is what I developed when I was working with substance abuse and criminal conduct. And certainly the environment needs to be very structured. So that uh, has that in there if you wanted to use that as well, besides just the lessons. The Choose Wisely, there's that one. 
And then there's my new one, which is Living Well, a Guide to Cognitive Behavioral Skills Exercises. In 20 years, we pick up a lot of techniques and things like that. Now, it certainly goes through choice theory and explains that and what have you. But then it really looks at different techniques, most of them evidence-based techniques, diaphragmatic breathing, EFT tapping, mindfulness exercises. It does go have self-hypnosis in there, how to do the self-hypnosis with scripts and what have you. It has social skills in there, assertiveness, understanding, responding to the feelings of others, things of that nature. And then there's a section in there really on how to find meaning in life that looks at ikigai exercise, the Japanese exercise, and also the concept of flow that Cheek sent me high developed and what have you. That's my newest one. And I use that with all of my clients now. It was sort of an exercise where instead of giving them a sheet of paper each week, I just put it all together and now I just give them the book. <laughs> so nice. it, it also eliminated sort of, they would come back the next week and I would say, well, did you do your tapping this week? And they would say, you know, I forgot how to do it. So, okay. So now they have the book. Very nice. I was sitting here thinking you're going to put all of us counselors out of business with this book, but you actually use it in conjunction with counseling. So that's yeah. nice. If people wanted to reach out for you, Ron, and, and connect with you, how would you like them to do that? My best connection is through email. That's ron.modern, M-O-T-T-E-R-N, at gmail.com. Okay, that's terrific. I'll make sure that goes in the show notes, too. I really want to thank you for being here. You've been a great guest and full of a wealth of information, especially for people who are using reality therapy and choice theories. So thank you so much for being with us. It's been my pleasure. Nice to finally meet you. <laughs> right. Same here. You just finished listening to an episode on the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to leave me a review on iTunes share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Instagram or Facebook. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be changing topics to leadership and interviewing Marsha Zablotny on choice theory leadership in a drug and alcohol treatment facility. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.